Suffering in the Christian life is not necessarily to be avoided, and neither is it to be accepted with a defeated attitude. The life of the Christian is to be patterned after Jesus Christ. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Our studies in The Message of Salvation continue today as we look at how Jesus endured suffering in order to enter into glory, just as we too are called to follow and do likewise. Phil, today you'll address the difficult issue of suffering in the Christian life. What are some of the key points that Christians should understand about suffering? You know, in a way, Mark, you've already made one of the first points that needs to be made, and that is that suffering is a part of the Christian life, and the Bible's very honest about that. It doesn't hide us from all of the difficulties of loss, of disappointment, of sorrow, but it puts all of those sufferings into the context of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus really has set the pattern for us. He has gone through suffering into glory, and that gives meaning and hope and purpose to us in our own sufferings. Well, in what ways does indeed Christ set the pattern for our suffering in this life? We could talk about that in many different ways. Mark, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about sharing in the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. And he was saying, look, there's something significant about the suffering that Jesus went through that's directly connected to the sufferings that I'm going through. And what an encouragement that is. You know, there's a sense in which Jesus could have avoided the sufferings. You know, he couldn't have done the work of our salvation if he had avoided them, but he had a real choice to make to go through with all of the sufferings of the cross. And he did did that for us, and that should give us courage and hope. And now we have a very practical example to follow. We can face our own sufferings with the joy and the hope of knowing that there will be glory for us after the suffering, just as there was glory for Jesus after his suffering. Hmm. Well, thank you, Phil. Uh, please turn in your Bible to First Peter chapter 1, and let's hear God's Word for us today. Then stay tuned after the message to hear about a special booklet we have on how to triumph in suffering. I don't suppose that there's anything that raises more questions about God than human suffering. C.S. Lewis called this the problem of pain. He defined it like this, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either the goodness or the power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. I suppose that this problem becomes especially acute in an age of technology. We live in a world of wonders, and yet we can see that it remains a world of woe. For the unbeliever, this raises doubts about God's very existence. The English journalist Malcolm Muggeridge observed that suffering is an inflamed nerve, which when touched gives rise to howls of rage and anguish, especially today. Surely when we can go to the moon and ride through space, when our very genes are counted and our organs replaceable, when we can arrange to eat without growing fat, to flash a gleaming smile without being happy, surely suffering should be banished from our lives. 
and that we should have to go on suffering and watch others suffering is an outrage. And a deity who, having the power to stop it, still allowed it to continue, would be a monster and not a loving God. That is the problem of suffering for the unbeliever. For the Christian, the problem of suffering is slightly different. Even if we are not able to explain the ultimate origin of evil, we know that God is not a monster. He is the God of all grace, who saves us in His love. We also know that much of our pain is self-induced, the product of human sin, and therefore that God is not to blame. Yet we still have questions. And one of the most difficult is this. If we are saved by grace, then why do we still suffer? If we are saved by grace, then why do we still suffer? It's a question that the first Christians must have asked the apostles. They had been delivered from sin and from death through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were God's new people, a community established to spread God's love throughout the world. And yet they were persecuted and oppressed. They were battered and beaten, imprisoned, and even crucified. And there must have been times when they wondered if it was all worth it. I mean, what is the point of being saved if not to be saved from suffering? And so it was that the Apostle Peter wrote his first letter to address the problem of pain. I encourage you to have it open, First Peter chapter 1. Dear friends, Peter wrote, this is actually from chapter 4, verse 12, that explains why Peter was writing, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Well, apparently the early church was surprised. It did seem strange to them that they had to endure so many painful trials. And there are times when we are surprised too, when it seems strange to us to have to suffer And at such times, we need to be reminded that suffering is part of our salvation, that God does not save us from suffering, but through suffering and into glory. That's the theme of this message and the message next week, through suffering into glory. You can see how from the very beginning of 1 Peter, suffering is placed right in the context of our salvation. In the opening chapter, Peter mentions nearly all of the great doctrines of salvation He speaks of grace, of God's saving grace for sinners. He proclaims that salvation includes election by the Father and redemption by the Son and sanctification by the Spirit. And he reminds us, and this is in verse 3, that God has made this salvation ours through regeneration, through that newborn life that comes through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He promises us eternal life, that Glorious inheritance that can never perish, can never spoil, can never fade, kept in heaven for us that one day will become ours at the coming of salvation. You can see how all the great doctrines of salvation are here. And at the beginning of verse 6, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. And what he means by the this is the coming of salvation by grace through faith. But in the meantime, there will be suffering. Verse 6, now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. I want to make four points about suffering. The first is this, that suffering is a painful presence in the Christian life, the presence of suffering. The Bible is honest about this. 
Even for Christians there is suffering. Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. And Peter learned this to be true from his own experience, that when Jesus said trouble, he meant all kinds of trouble. Peter doesn't go into all the specifics here, but he obviously intends to include every kind of suffering there is. His point is not so much how often we suffer, but how many different ways we do suffer. Our sufferings are manifold. We suffer all the little disappointments of life, the minor inconveniences, the short-term setbacks. Young or old, man or woman, married or single, black or white, there is not one person here who does not suffer. Whether it is some debilitating disease or some lonely isolation or hateful prejudice or simply tedious boredom, we all suffer the futility of life on a fallen planet. The world is so marred by sin that suffering is like the background music of our existence. We suffer hunger and homelessness. We suffer unfulfilled dreams and unsatisfied desires. We suffer from natural disasters. The Bible says the creation itself is groaning under the weight of suffering, frustrated by its bondage to decay. We suffer persecution. Jesus warned his disciples, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. and You will be hated by all nations because of me. This prophecy has been proven true over and over again from the very first days of the church. God's new people have been oppressed and imprisoned and tortured and put to death. Peter was writing from Rome. The Christians who were burned by flames and devoured by lions. This history draws ever closer to its destiny. The sufferings of the church seem to be getting worse. Given our history, perhaps it's not surprising that the biblical word for witness is also the term for martyr. Anyone who lives for Christ must be prepared to die for him, and perhaps death especially is what Peter had in mind as he was writing to a persecuted church and as he was speaking about grief in all kinds of trials. Grief is that heaviness of spirit that accompanies any loss, and which we associate primarily with loss through death, which is our last enemy. You see, the Bible recognizes that all these trials with all of the pain and distress that they bring are a present reality, and Peter knew this to be true from his own experience. He had many troubles of his own. He witnessed the crucifixion of his friend Jesus. He was seized and imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And although on those occasions he was delivered by angels, he knew because Jesus had told him that one day he himself would have to stretch out his hands to die. Tradition maintains that Peter was indeed crucified at Rome. Given his experiences, perhaps it is not surprising that Peter wrote a letter to the church telling the church not to be surprised by their present suffering. One man who suffered grief in all kinds of trials was the German Karl Gerdeler. I think perhaps I've mentioned a little bit of his story before. Gerdler was imprisoned and executed for his involvement in the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. His prison diary shows that he spent his final days struggling to understand all of the horrors that he had experienced and witnessed. 
And he wrote, In sleepless nights I have often asked myself whether a God exists who shares in the personal fate of men. It is becoming hard to believe this. For this God must, for years, have allowed rivers of blood and suffering and mountains of horror and despair for mankind to take place. Is this meant to be a judgment? Like the psalmist, I am angry with God because I cannot understand Him. And yet, through Christ, I am still looking for the merciful God. And you see, Gerdler was looking in the right place, for it is when we look to Christ that we find that our suffering is fashioned after His suffering. For the Christian, suffering follows a pattern, and this is my second point. It's a pattern that Peter mentions in verse 11, where he refers to the sufferings of Christ and to the glories that would follow. Christ sets the pattern for the Christian through suffering and into glory. Jesus suffered his whole life. As the Bible says, he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. It started from his very birth. Even to be born was to suffer. In his divine being, the Son had lived in glory from eternity past. But when he became a human being, he had to suffer all of the weakness and the weariness of the human body. He was tired and hungry and Thirsty, homeless, he wandered on the earth. He was despised and rejected. People plotted against him. They tried to stone him. And then, finally, as Peter himself witnessed, they stripped him and beat him and crucified him. This was the Son of God. And from birth to death, Christ suffered, as Peter goes on to say in chapter 4, Christ suffered in his body. And if that is what happened to Christ then what do you suppose will happen to the Christian? We are united to Christ by faith, and that Christ to whom we have been united was a suffering and bleeding man. The obvious implication of this is that we, too, will suffer. To be united to Christ is to be united to Him in His sufferings. In chapter 4, Peter calls this participating in the sufferings of Christ. The point is that the Christian life is so patterned after the life of Christ, so shaped and formed according to it that that includes the sufferings of Christ. We do not suffer then in spite of our salvation, but precisely because of it. Our theology is a theology of the cross, and our life as Christians is lived under the cross. In a novel called Cry the Beloved Country, Written by Alan Payton, it's about life in South Africa. Kumalo learns this profound lesson about suffering from his friend Msamangu, who says, I have never thought that a Christian would be free of suffering, for our Lord suffered. And I come to believe that he suffered not to save us from suffering, but to teach us how to bear suffering. For he knew that there is no life without suffering. And as we share in the sufferings of Christ in this way, we may be sure that God himself understands what it is like for us to suffer. This is what is meant by compassion, literally to suffer with. And God is the God of compassion. The scripture calls him the father of compassion. And that is to say that he suffers with us, not in his eternal being, but through Jesus Christ, the God-man. God suffered in Christ. He knows 
what it is like to experience pain. He traveled down the road of pain and abandonment and suffering and death. God, therefore, does not remain aloof from the world of pain. No, in Christ, he has passed through the shadow of suffering himself. If Christ is our pattern in this way, then there is much to be learned from his sufferings. Peter mentions this in chapter 2. You can see as I refer to these other verses how the whole letter of 1 Peter is about suffering. Chapter 2, verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ is the pattern. We follow his pattern. We learn from his example, and that shows us how to respond to suffering. I think, first of all, of the emotions that Jesus experienced at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. You may remember what happened, how after a brief illness, Lazarus had suddenly died, and to the dismay of the man's family and friends, Jesus arrived too late, as it seemed, to help him. The community was in mourning, and when Jesus saw them weeping, he himself was moved to tears. The Scripture says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. When Jesus confronted human suffering in the face of death, he experienced two powerful emotions, sorrow and also anger. The Greek word used to describe his emotions is a word for righteous indignation. To put it literally, Jesus groaned with fury over the painful realities of death and suffering. When we think of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus weeping, even raging at the reality of death, we start to understand that he struggled with suffering much as we do. And it is not surprising if suffering then for us sometimes produces sorrow and anger, in fact, on occasion it ought to. Jesus experienced the same emotions himself, and we are sharing in his sufferings. Nor is it wrong for us to ask questions about the problem of our pain. Even Jesus had at least one question about suffering. Remember his agonizing question from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And is that not the very question that we ourselves ask when we cannot comprehend our suffering? Why, God? And I suppose we may never understand what it meant for the Son to be forsaken by the Father, but at least we know that Jesus faced up to all the hard questions about human suffering. That he not only raged against the sufferings of a dying humanity and shed sympathetic tears over them, but that he actually experienced them in such a way that it made him ask for an explanation from the cross. Now, if suffering is the question, is there an answer? Do our troubles accomplish anything? What is the explanation for our tribulation Is there any solution to the problem of pain? These questions are hard for anyone to answer, but I tell you they are much harder to answer without Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has entered into the sufferings of humanity, but if you do not know Christ, then what answer will you give to the problem of pain? For the unbeliever, suffering has no ultimate purpose, I think, for example, of the anguish of the French poet Charles Baudelaire who cried out, Behave, O my pain! Baudelaire's problem was that his pain 
refuse to behave. Pain rarely does. And the unbeliever is faced with senseless suffering. Now, Christians struggle with suffering too, but we know that suffering is part of God's saving plan for us, and that makes all the difference. Remember, we are not saved from suffering, but through suffering into glory. And throughout this letter, Peter explains many of the purposes of suffering in the Christian life. And actually, this is my third point, the purpose of suffering. And there are many of them. Suffering is a tether. It ties us more closely to Christ. It is a testimony. It gives us the opportunity to display God's grace to others in time of trial. Suffering is, of course, a teacher. It instructs us in humility and righteousness. It's a trainer. It prepares us for glory. Thus, for the Christian, suffering has many purposes. The English preacher and poet John Donne wrote, No man hath affliction that is not matured and ripened by it and made fit for God by that affliction. Indeed, it is hard to identify any experience in life that is a greater stimulus to spiritual growth than the experience of suffering. Surely there are many who can testify that the flowers of holiness are watered by the tears of affliction. Suffering has so many purposes, it's not always possible to tell what God is trying to accomplish in any particular trial. There is one thing that suffering almost always does for God's people, and that is to prove the genuineness of our faith. Peter introduces this in verse 7 of chapter 1. After referring to the grief that we suffer in all kinds of trials, he explains why these have come. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. It's easy to see the basis for Peter's comparison. Both gold and faith are purified by fire. And perhaps you know the standard practice of metallurgy, how golden ore is refined by burning away its impurities until nothing is left but pure gold. And of course, our faith is purified in much the same way. It takes the fires of tribulation to burn away our self-reliance so that nothing remains except absolute trust in God. But now see also the reason that a miner takes so much trouble to refine gold. It's because it's so valuable. Pure gold is among the most precious of metals. And yet, as precious as it is, even it will not last forever. One day it will be lost or stolen. It's Why Jesus told us not to make a foolish investment. Remember what he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And even if a man is able to gather an enormous pile of gold and hoard it until the end of his life, he'll still have to leave it all behind when he dies. You see, faith is much more precious than gold because it will not perish It is by faith, Jesus said, that we store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. It is by faith that we make the best investment, laying hold of glory with all of its splendors. And so it is that even one ounce of faith is worth more than all the gold in the world. And the faith is so much more precious than gold 
then one might expect it to go through an even more intense process of refinement. You see, that is Peter's point. Our faith must pass through many burning and fiery trials before we are ready for glory. Suffering, you may say, is the crucible of faith. And if our faith is false, it will surely be consumed by the fire. But if it is genuine, it will come out shining like pure gold. And if we find that even in our greatest sufferings, even in spite of ourselves, that still in some way we are holding on to Christ, that is the proof of our salvation. It is the guarantee for us of glory. Now, it is not easy to hold on to Christ, especially when life is hard and our sufferings seem like more than we can even bear. The Christian life is difficult. We can expect grief in all kinds of trials. But by the grace of God, and this is the last thing, we must persevere through suffering. We must persevere because that is what Jesus did. He did not leave a question mark hanging over his cross. Oh, there were times when suffering brought Jesus to tears or even aroused his anger. But he persevered to the end, finishing the work of our salvation. With his dying words, he committed his spirit in faith to his Father. As the Scripture says, he endured the cross. And if Jesus endured, then we must endure. For perseverance is part of what it means to follow the pattern of suffering. And we will persevere, you may be sure of that. Peter tells us in verse 5 that through faith we are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation. His picture is of a city under siege, surrounded and attacked by enemies, and yet the city is preserved and protected by a garrison of soldiers. In times of suffering, the Christian is like a city under siege, attacked by fear, assailed by doubt. But faith is the believer's garrison. And no matter how desperate the situation becomes, a faith that has been proved genuine will not fail and the city will prevail. Such a faith cannot fail because it holds on to Christ and we know that He cannot fail. And so it is that true believers never finally fall away but persevere to the end because Christ always perseveres with them. The best news of all is that we will not have to persevere for very long. Do you notice that little phrase in verse 6? Now, for a little while, we will have to suffer. Peter's not trying to minimize our suffering, but what he is trying to do is put it into perspective. Our suffering is real, but not ultimate. And we are being saved through suffering into glory, and the suffering will not last long. The glory will come soon. It's significant, I think, that at the beginning of this Letter, Peter writes to Christians as strangers in the world. Better translation, perhaps, is sojourner. The word for stranger refers to a traveler or a visitor, a temporary resident in a foreign country. You see, it applies to us if we know Christ, because we are strangers on this earth. It's like the words of the old gospel song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. We will not suffer here forever. We are citizens of heaven. Our visas here are temporary. And we should travel light looking forward to the day 
when we will all go home. No sooner has Peter mentioned our sufferings in verses 6 and 7 than he wants to look forward to our future glory in Christ in verses 8 and 9. We are even now, verse 9, receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. You see, even while we suffer, we are already starting to hold on to glory through faith in the unseen Christ. I once read the story of a little boy who had a terminal illness. His parents did not try to hide the severity of his condition. They frankly told their son that he would have to suffer and that before long, barring a miracle, he would die. So they also spoke to him about the joys of heaven. They believed the message of salvation, and so did he. And together they tried to imagine what heaven would be like. The more the boy's condition worsened and the more intense his suffering became, the more joyful and expectant he became. He was ready to pass through suffering into glory. His parents would comfort him by saying, It will not be long now. Soon you will go to be with Jesus. And finally, it was time. The day came when the boy passed from this suffering, sinful world into eternal glory. And as he gasped for his last few breaths, a remarkable peace descended upon the hospital room. The boy's face was radiant. It seemed to those standing there that he could no longer see them, that he was already stepping through the gates of paradise. And they saw him smile. And although they could hear no voice, he seemed to be listening to a whisper from heaven. And his dying words were not addressed to men, but spoken perhaps to an unseen angel as if to answer a question. Yes, the boy said, I'm ready. The little boy's experience contains the essence of the Christian's path through suffering into glory. It will not be long now. No, it it will not be long now. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we confess we don't always understand the difficulties of life. We don't always understand you because we don't understand the difficulties of life. And yet we give you praise that even the difficult and desperate things of life are included in your plan of salvation, that we will persevere through them, that in them we will come to know in an intimate way a relationship with Christ, and that one day, not long from now, it will all be over. We give you praise for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word, 
with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.